Good morning. How's everyone doing? It's a little quiet in here, so I'm going to take a page out of Nathan's playbook. Will you stand up real quick and just stretch out? Just stretch out. Uh, Maybe slap your neighbor's hand. Say, I'm so glad you're here. Hope Brooklyn in the house. Perfect. So my name's Russell. I'm one of the pastors here. And before we get to that text and looking at it, I want to go back to an announcement that uh, Faith just talked about. We're launching, guys. Woo! Yeah, we're launching. On Easter Sunday, we are having our launch service and a block party. It's going to be awesome. And I know you're wondering, all right, well, how can I get involved? How can I spread the word for the campaign? Our wonderful brand manager, Ashley, has thought through these two options so you can do it. And this is what we're going to do. So if you want to spread the word for our launch service, it's sort of our way of saying, hey, we feel comfortable as a church plant now. Um, we're not in the preview season any longer. We want to celebrate with a big, a big shebang. We have flyers. We have flyers. At the end of service, as you leave, the greeters are going to give you three of them. All right? Because sometimes it can feel overwhelming with who to invite and what to do with them. They're going to give you three. You can take more. Please take more if you want. But definitely three. And this is what you do. The first one goes to you goes on your fridge, save the date, put it in the calendar, be here on April 16th. The second one goes to the one. So if you're familiar, there's a parable in the Gospels where Jesus says he likens himself to the good shepherd. And he says a shepherd has a hundred sheep and one of them wandered away. And he says God is like a shepherd who would leave the 99 to go after the one and bring them back. That's how much he loves each person. And I think that applies for all of us in our own spheres of influence, our own lives. Who is the one in your life? What relationship are you in, whether it's a colleague or a neighbor, that God would say, this one. If if no one else you invite to this launch service and block party, this is the one that I've put on your heart, that I'm pursuing them, you pursue them. So the first one's for you, the second one is for that one. And if they're a part of a church already, don't invite them, all right? Uh, For someone who maybe is not a part of a church or not a Christian, like we said, we're crowds and disciples. You don't have to be a Christian to be here. There's room at the table for your questions and who you are. Um, Who is the one? Invite them and give one to them, I should say. And then finally, the third one is dealer's choice. So if you want to give it to another person or maybe you're a a local at a coffee shop in the neighborhood where the baristas know you and they'd allow you to leave it there or you want to leave it at work, whatever it is. So one for you, um, one for the one, and dealer's choice for the third. And take more if you want, okay. Sound good? And then secondly, there's a Facebook event. So I don't know if y'all know this, but Hope Brooklyn has a Facebook page, and we have an event about the, uh, the launch service and the block party. So go online, RSVP to it, and then share it on your wall. Because there's a, a, a digital world, apparently, you know, that uh, gets news around. And that actually is gonna be very ironic in later on in the sermon, you'll see why. Um, but does that sound good? We good with that? Awesome. Will y'all pray with me? And then we'll get going. Father, we give you such thanks. You give us breath. And we confess most of the time, we don't realize it comes from you. We don't realize the gift of being a human. The gift of friends and family and jobs. The gift of life. Lord, today as we uh, examine a story from your scripture, 
as we think through the idols in our own lives and how we can fast from them, renounce them, confess them, and turn our hearts back to you. Would you just speak to the room? Would you encourage people? Would you tell them that there's absolutely nothing that they can do or leave undone that will forfeit your love or your pursuit of them? Would you call them to a higher place? Would you call them to follow you? Knowing the sacrifices, would you call them? We give you thanks, Jesus. Thank you for this community. Thank you for this church that you're planting. And it's in your name we pray, amen. So we're in our series, Mirrors. And Mirrors is corresponding to the season of Lent in the church calendar. And Lent is 40 days leading up uh, to the Passion events, the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection. And it corresponds to the 40 days that Jesus was tempted in the desert. And the idea behind this series, the idea behind our title, Mirrors, is that you are whatever you worship. That like a mirror, a human creature is designed to worship something. And whatever it is we worship, that's what we reflect. That's what we embody to the world. And you worship whatever you love. See, the season of Lent talks about the human heart's tendency to love, that is to worship, that is to become things and people other than God. But what we're saying is that we are most human when we have God at the center. I'm usually not a fan of like pithy statements, and this is gonna sound kind of new agey, but essentially what Lent reminds us as Christians is that when God is first, we are best. And I don't mean like your best you, you know? I don't mean that. But I mean the human machine, the human creature is like a machine that is designed to run off the life source of God the creator. And when God is at the core of who we are, of our existence, we are the best form of a human. And so this season of Lent has four steps that sort of help us um, to to put God back at the center. And, And the fancy church word for that is repentance. And the four steps are this. First, we name the idol. We name whatever it is that our heart is going after instead of God. We name it. We call it out and then we confess it. And confession sort of seems like a redundant step, but it's really not. As I've said before, and I'm sure you can probably agree, how many times do we want to say I'm sorry without actually saying I'm sorry? There's something super powerful with no qualification, with with no explanation, just saying I'm sorry, period, forgive me, I messed up. So we name the idol. We name the way that our hearts are going after other things other than God. We confess it. We ask for forgiveness. Then we fast from it. We remove it. Or we don't give it ultimate place. We'll find that many of the things that become idols are good things. Like we've talked the first two weeks, um, Pastor Mike from Hope Westside talked about family and community. That's a good thing. And then Nathan last week, didn't Nathan do a great job last week, by the way? Yeah. Give it up for Nathan. Nathan talked last week about work. Work is a good thing. We're designed to work. Now, how we work, how much value we derive from our work, that can become idolatrous. 
but we fast from it or we change the way we do it and we replace it during the season with kingdom liturgies so as to form our loves. There's a cycle of love. There's a cycle that forms what we love, what our hearts are going after. And it's simply this. First, we taste something. When we taste it, enough times we learn to desire it. How do you think we acquired a taste for wine or beer? I remember having a Budweiser as a 12-year-old. I did not like it. Now I enjoy Bud. We taste it. Taste it enough time, then we desire it. And then we desire it, we start to see it everywhere. When we see it everywhere, we taste it some more. And our loves are formed. So today we're going to look at another idol. And before we do that, we're going to sort of examine the text that Stephanie read, Genesis 3, which details the story of the fall. Details the story where humanity fell. And the way it's going to flow today, we're going to start super theological, hopefully not super theological. We're going to start a little theological, all right? But then it's going to end very, very practical, okay? So stay with me. So as we read this text today, we read the text of the serpent uh, having a conversation with Eve, um, Adam and Eve eating of the fruit, and then discovering they're naked. There are a lot of questions that are raised by this text, a lot of questions, some helpful, some unhelpful. I think one that is, is particularly helpful, or at least an interesting question, would be why did God put that terrible tree in the garden? Why did God put that terrible tree in the garden? So if you read Genesis 2, it talks about God creates everything, the heavens and the earth. He creates the stars, the planets, um, creates the animals, the fish, the, the sea creatures, the land creatures. He creates it all. But then he creates uh, humanity. And humanity is a different form of creation because humanity is made in the image of God. And when he creates humanity, he puts a tree in the center of the garden. And he tells humanity, Adam and Eve, you can eat of any tree, just not this one. If you eat of this one, you will surely die. Now the question is, why did God even do that? Why did he put that terrible tree in the garden that could compromise his relationship with Adam and Eve. Now, the first thing I would say before we go further into what that is, recognize that we call it terrible from our side of the fall, right? For us, knowing that humanity has fallen, that we've walked away from a relationship with God and that we've begun the sad, mournful history of a nagging itch that we can never fully scratch, that tree looks really terrible. But what was it from Adam's side, right? When Adam and Eve heard that, they who experienced perfect union and intimacy with God, was it terrible for them or was it just natural? Was it like arithmetic? When you learn you know, to do math, you always gotta carry the one. When your teacher you know, says, hey, you add it up and you carry the one, you're not like, oh, that's so terrible. Why? No, it's just, it's natural. Okay, when I add and it goes above 10, I carry the one. It's neither here nor there. So first, I would ask us to consider our position when we read this story, that we are on this side of the fall. But the question still remains, why did God put the tree in the garden? Scholars have debated that for thousands of years. The answer I find most convincing is this. God made humans in his image. To be in the image of God is to be 
free. It's to be free. It's to have choice, unhindered, unencumbered, not coerced choice. I love this definition by Dietrich Bonhoeffer about freedom. He says, freedom is not a quality a human being has. It is not an ability, a capacity, an attribute of being that may be deeply hidden in a person, but can somehow be uncovered. It's not like someone who's fast. You know if someone is fast. That's an attribute they have, and they say, let me show you that I am fast, and they pull it out, and they're really fast. That's not what freedom is. You can't say, show me what freedom is. Like, it's not just this isolated attribute, this quality they can pull out. Freedom, says Bonhoeffer, is a relation and nothing else. Freedom is a relation, moreover, between two persons. Being free means being free for the other. Being free means being free for the other because I am bound to the other. Only by being in relation with the other am I free. Now that should strike you as interesting because that's not the modern understanding of freedom. And in our country specifically, land of the free, home of the brave, the modern idea of freedom is not a freedom discovered in relationship, it is freedom as being autonomous, right? It's freedom as total autonomy, total independence. It's actually a freedom not in relationship. It's a freedom that eschews all relationships and discovers who I am in myself. But what we find when we consider this modern understanding of freedom is that it always leads to just other levels of enslavement. Two examples. Uh, it's very common. Maybe it happened to some of you. When you graduate high school, you go to college, and for the first time in your life, you don't have mom and dad or parents or grandparents telling you what to do. Freshmen discover this newfound independence, this freedom, this autonomy. And so they're like, oh, I don't have to go to class or I can party as much as I want. And so they do. They engage in a lifestyle to drink as much as they can and do drugs and sleep around with whoever they want. And that's freedom. They are independent. They have that choice. But what happens at the end of that road? Maybe not in the middle, but what happens at the end of the road? They discover they're empty, far emptier than they were before when they thought they were less free. They discover they're actually enslaved to something different, that they're not freedom. Freedom isn't just autonomy. It, it, it also is a certain amount of shalom, a certain amount of peace, a certain amount of wholeness, which isn't there. Or maybe um, someone runs and you know, acquires money and they have buying power. And so they start buying things because they are autonomous. They're free, they're independent. They can buy whatever they want. But what happens over time? At first it feels pretty cool. It's like, oh, look at my freedom. But then at the end of that road you discover I'm just enslaved to the feeling I get when I buy something new. I'm not really free. It's just another form, a more subtle form of enslavement. As Jacques Ellul puts it, he is most enslaved when he thinks he is comfortably settled in freedom. Because freedom is not autonomy. Freedom is not independence. Being free from God's perspective, the way he wrote it into the fabric of the cosmos, is being free for another. It's found in relationship. 
because I have bound myself to another. Freedom is found when we willingly bind ourselves to another. So in this story, God's freedom is bound to Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve's freedom is bound to God through the tree. Through the tree, both choose the other freely. I mean, to put it another way, another metaphor, to be free in a house with no doors is not to be free, right? If God created Adam and Eve and put him in a house with no doors and says, you're free. No, you're not, you're a pet. That's not freedom, you can't get out. But if God puts a door and says, you're free now to stay here and love me, then you actually are free. They are now free to choose to limit themselves for God. They are free to love God. I'm married. I'm married. Uh, in my marriage, there's a boundary. There's a, there's a limit to my freedom. Almost like a tree at the center of my marriage. Her name is Anna. Anna constitutes the limit of my marriage. She is at the center, and at the center, she says to me, it is me and no other. It is her word. And she doesn't coerce me into that. She states it, me and no other. She is like the tree at the center of my marriage. If I remove her from the center, because, say, I don't want to be married to one woman, I want to be married to five women or ten women, then who goes to the center of my marriage now? If it's not her word binding me in freedom, then who's at the center? Me. Right now, she's at the center saying me and no other. But if I say no, I want other, then now I've become the center of my marriage. In a relationship, love must be free, which means the other person is the boundary. And not coerced, but willingly chosen. I love how Chesterton puts it. He goes, keeping to one woman is a small price for so much as seeing one woman. To complain that I could only be married once was like complaining that I had only been born once. It showed not an exaggerated sensibility to sex, but a curious insensibility to it. See, what he's getting at is that the root of this idolatry, the root of disobeying God, of removing his word from the center and saying, I'm at the center, is essentially God created the universe. And he goes, hey, marriage is a good thing. Marriage works best when you marry one person. That's when it works best. Now, why does he get to say that? He gets to say that because he's the creator, because he knows. And all the modern forms of idolatry are all the ways we say, no, I understand marriage better. I understand work better. And we put ourselves in the center. Does that make sense a little bit? I know it's kind of abstract. The tree was placed in the center of the garden because the tree created our freedom. It was Adam's limit separating him from God that allowed him to choose God freely. Now, another question is, why does God get to be at the center? Why does God's word get to constitute the limit? Simple answer, he's the creator. We are the creature. The creator gives life. The creature receives life. Humans, in our relationships, we practice mutual submission. So in Anna's marriage, I'm at the center. And at the center, I tell her, me and no other. And in freedom, she chooses to limit herself and say yes. In the center of my marriage is her. She says, me and no other. And in freedom, I limit myself and say yes. And we do that all the time in our relationships. 
but with God, because he's the creator, he's, his word gets to be at the center and saying, choose me, choose me. So the serpent comes up and says, did God really say? I had a professor point out, which I thought very interesting. This is the first theological conversation the world ever saw because this is the first time uh, beings, creatures were talking about God instead of talking to God. The serpent and Eve had a conversation about God instead of to God. Now, I love talking about God. That's like my favorite thing to do. It's what we do here on Sundays. But never forget, we serve, we are in relationship with one who we get to directly address. And so he asked the question, he goes, did God say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? And Eve rightly answers, no, God didn't say that. God said we can eat from every tree in the garden except for one, the one at the center, because if we do that, we will die. And the serpent goes, you'll not die. You'll not die. God knows that your eyes will be open and you will become like God. Now what I find so sad about that exchange is that both Eve and the serpent were right. They were. They ate from the fruit and they became like God. But what even Adam didn't know yet is that to be like God is to die. To be like God is to die, to remove God from the center, to remove the life source from the center who said, in freedom, choose me. And to remove that, that life source and say, no, I'll do whatever I want. To remove the life source is to cut off life. It is to slowly shrivel up and die. Our eyes were opened and we discovered we're naked. When the creature is left alone without a relationship with the creator, it's naked. And idolatry are all the ways we put other things at the center and so enslave ourselves. True freedom is being free for God. Now, I said it was gonna start a little theological, but here's why. Because I wanna get at that idea of what it's like God and get super practical, all right? What is it to be like God? What is it to be a creator and so to die? Well, there's obviously lots of things we can say. In, uh, in Sunday school growing up, I was told that to be like God, and it's kind of simplistic, but I, sometimes I think the simplistic answers are the best, are the omnis. You know what I'm talking about? To be omni is to be like God. To be omnipresent is to be everywhere. To be omniscient is to be all-knowing. And to be omnipotent is to be all-powerful. So to be like God is to be omni. It's to be everything. And obviously we can take this many ways. I just wanna take it one. Because here's, there's this one thing, there's this one um, liturgy, there's this one uh, machine in our culture that I think is giving us our dose of the omnis every single day. And maybe we're aware of it, maybe we're not yet fully aware. But I think this, this, this thing makes us like God and it's killing us. Have I built up the anticipation? We ate the apple again. I looked up, because when I just, I had a friend, AJ from Portland, sort of allude to this. And I looked up, why did Jobs name his company Apple? It didn't have anything to do with this, but that is super scary then now. We ate the apple again. This device gives us our dose of the omnis every day. And friends, it's killing us. 
which is why I said it was ironic earlier because I still want you to go on Facebook and say you're coming to the Easter block party and then share it on your wall. <laughs> but maybe this will help us think through our usage of the device. Here's some basic stats. Americans spend on average 4.7 hours a day on their phone. 4.7 hours. 50% of American adults sleep with their phones. I'm not talking about it's on their bedside table. I'm talking about it's like in the bed on their, in their hands. And you know, 50%, that means half of this room does that too. Text messages, the dings, the red notifications, um, the way Snapchat's always changing up their filters. It emits dopamine and serotonin in our brains, those feel-good chemicals. Friends, I just wanna ask the question, are we free? We have, we have everything. This gives us our omnis. Are we free? Or is it making us like God and is it killing us? Let's just go through the omnis. Omniscient, to be all-knowing. There's uh, something, there's a phenomenon called the Google effect. And the Google effect essentially says it has become so commonplace to look up the answer to any question, it can feel like going through withdrawal when you can't find out something immediately. We are becoming symbiotic with our devices growing in the interconnected systems that remember less by knowing information than by knowing where the information can be found. In fact, the gray matter in our brains is decreasing. Forgive me if I'm coming across a little bit of a contrarian today, all right? Just so you know, I'm as much a victim, victim, uh, I'm indicted in this as much as the next person. Let's go with the victim, we're all victims, okay? <laughs> but we're all indicted in this. This is not me coming down and like, ugh, this is me, sort of peeling back the layers, asking questions, getting us to think a little bit um, of why we do what we do. But this device gives us omniscience. It decreases, the, we, we no longer know specific things. We know where we can find the answers, such that gray matter is decreasing. Millennials, of which I am, it has been shown that we can focus on things for less than five minutes before we get tempted to switch to something else. I love this, uh, this very candid post from a Huffington Post blogger, millennial blogger, and she puts it this way. If I was writing an article and got to a difficult sentence, I would switch over to Facebook, hoping for inspiration that would spiral into my son and me watching two otters cuddling. Now, I love watcher, watching otters cuddling as much as the next guy, all right? But that's interesting. And then I would decide to give up on my writing for the day. If I was trying to decide what to wear for a night out with my husband, I'd go on Instagram to get outfit ideas and would end up scrolling months back on the best vacations feed, and then I would be late to meet him. If I was chewing on what to make for dinner, I would go on Pinterest for crafty ideas and end up scrolling through different ways to braid my hair, and then I would order pizza. Anyone else can relate to that? Yeah, yeah. I taught eighth grade math my first year out of school, and what I discovered um, was that students had absolutely no concept of how to sweat for an answer. Like, I could teach, I was teaching intro to algebra, and I could give the formula, and they would memorize the formula. But as soon as I sort of changed things around in the formula, as soon as it wasn't completely clear, as soon as they tried once to solve it, and it didn't work, they were done. They didn't know what to do. They had no idea how to work for an answer. Why? because they grew up with the Google effect. They don't need to know the answer. They know how to type it in and say, Google, I'm feeling lucky today. Do y'all remember the I'm feeling lucky button? 
I had no idea what that did, by the way. I I didn't get that one. But I mean, that's that's the omniscience. That's the, the Google effect. Because we can know everything, friends, we know nothing. We know nothing. Are we free? Or are our eyes open and we're naked? This device makes us omnipresent. For the first time, the world is one big neighborhood. And therefore, we have this information overload with no capacity, no ability to process it or to act on it. We're just a conduit for what it flows through, right? We read something and then we thumb it up. Just thumb it up. And we read something else and something else and something else. The world has become one big neighborhood such that the psychological disorder FOMO is cropping up all over the place, which is a pervasive apprehension. I got this from WebMD. That others might be having rewarding experiences from which one is absent. This social angst is characterized by a desire to stay continually connected with what others are doing. FOMO is a compulsive concern that one might miss an opportunity for social interaction, a novel experience, profitable investment, or other satisfying events. In other words, FOMO perpetuates the fear of having made the wrong decision on how to spend time as you imagine how things could be different. Anyone else? And we're gonna raise hands every time, right? Yeah, all of us, all of us. Why have one spouse when you can have five? But to ask that question is to be the creator, to create the context of existence. Why be here when I can be everywhere? And then even when I am here, I know about five or 10 other things happening. What if those are better? Uh, Anna and I are cinematographers and uh, we were filming a wedding last night and there was this really poignant moment um, where the, the bridesmaid the, was giving a speech, the, the maid of honor. Um, and she had this line where, where her relationship with the bride sort of became real to her. And she said it was at the point where we stopped talking about what seemingly was happening in our lives and started talking about what actually was. Up until that point, all their conversations have been premised on uh, the Facebook story of our life, about the jobs that we're working and the titles and the places that we're going and the relationships. But when she got to the point, when they got to this point where that fell away and they started talking about what actually is beneath the service, the pains they're experiencing, the fears they have. When they got to cry together, that's when she felt, which is what? Freedom. That's when she felt, I know you. The burden was lifted off my shoulders. I am freely in relationship with you, which is what the human creature was designed for. We're not designed to be everywhere. We're not designed to have friends all over the place. Take a line from the great Ron Swanson. Friends, one to three is sufficient. (laughs) We're not meant to have virtual friends everywhere because if we're everywhere, we're nowhere. Our eyes are open and we're naked. And this device gives us a sense of omnipotence It gives us this false sense of power to be able to do or be anything we want. It gives us this confidence. For me, that was in like sixth grade when AOL Instant Messenger came out. Yeah, AOL Instant Messenger, flashback. And I discovered what? 
I'm actually better talking at girls on this thing than I am in real life. Like I have a little more confidence. I can think about my answer. Face-to-face conversations, we don't have omnipotence to dictate every facet of the flow. So it's put this way. The way we interact online becomes the norm for how we interact offline. Facebook and Twitter communications are pretty short, clipped, and very rapid. Moreover, a good conversation involves listening and timing. And that is pretty much taken away with internet communications because you're not there with the person. So someone could send you a message and you could ignore it. Or someone could send you a message and you get two hours later. But if you're in real time, in a real place, with real bodies and a real voice, that is a very different dynamic. You shouldn't treat another person the way you would interact with Twitter. But we do. See, even our our power in relationships and conversations are changing. The short of this is stop texting as much. Maybe let's just go back a modest step, but let's just call on the phone again. Let's get real voices, real people. Let's have awkward conversations. Can I get an amen for that? Yes. That's why we do brunch. And we know it's awkward because, friends, we've lost the ability to sit and to stumble through that initial conversation of, oh, what's your name? Where are you from? We get through the pleasantries. We learn to trust one another. But I think everyone in this room, we would admit real relationships are far more far more freeing. They're far more life-giving than the types of relationships that are being developed on this device. And now I'm sure I sound like a regular Luddite right now, all right? Just like, oh, the phones. Let's go back to AOL Instant Messenger. <laughs> we're not, we can't live without them. That's the nature of the context. I don't want to be, we're not, just so you know, we're not going Amish. Anyone listening on you know, online, we're not going Amish. But I do want to start thinking deeper. I want to think critically. I want to analyze what we're doing. And so if we're naming that this has become an idol for us and we're confessing the way it determines our lives, the way it makes us like God, what is the principle of fasting in the kingdom liturgy? That's quite simple. The word is incarnation. Incarnation. It comes from the Greek ensarkose, which some of y'all might know uh, in that word is sarks, which means flesh. Incarnation is the central core logic of the entire gospel. That God so loved the world that he came incarnate as a human. God, theoretically, could have saved creation any way he wanted. God, who is omnipresent, who is omniscient, who is omnipotent, could have saved any way he wanted. What did he do? He came as one human. He came as one human within a particular story, within one story, with one language, within one historical period. The word, as John says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. I love Eugene Peterson's translation. God became a human and moved into the neighborhood. So the kingdom liturgy for us this week is to put down the phone. Just put it down. I love in 2 John, in the letter uh, that John is writing to a community, a church, he goes, although I have much to write to you, I'd rather come to you face to face and talk so that our joy may be complete. This week, your challenge is to be texting a friend and say, hey, 
Let's stop this text conversation and let's grab coffee after work and finish it there. That's your challenge today. I'm gonna be following up as well. Put down the phones and be in one place, in one time, with a limited sense of power, a limited sense of knowledge, a limited friend group, one to three. Put God back at the center. Embrace your limits, embrace your boundaries, and experience freedom. And it's hard, just so you know. I remember when uh, uh, Anna and I were trying to get the habit of practicing Sabbath. And um, the first time that we would do Sabbath, we kept our phones on us. But that really wasn't Sabbath. That wasn't freeing. That wasn't restful because on this device, I'm checking emails. So I'm doing work all over the place. I'm, you know, checking social media, figuring out what's going on in my friends' lives. That's not freeing. I'm in every place. I'm in everywhere. I have knowledge of what's going on. I'm, I'm being stressed out by work. But then Anna and I, we decided we're going to actually not use phones on Sabbath. Not a, we're going to keep them off. If it's an emergency, people know where to find me. We're going to keep phones off. And the first time we did that, no lie, I cried. Serious. I cried the first time. And it wasn't like a crying of like, it, it was tears of, I don't want to go into that much. It was tears of, what am I? It was identity. I, turning this off, I had to be reminded that I'm not that important. I'm not that powerful. I don't have that much knowledge. On this day, on my Sabbath day, I'm Russell, husband to Anna, who lives in Brooklyn, New York, in 2017. A limited sense of friends, and that's it. That's my worth. This gives us a sense of being like God. And it's intoxicating. It is, but it kills us. So the kingdom liturgy this week is quite modest. I don't know where you are on the spectrum of this topic today. I know it was super theological, then it got super practical. But I'm challenging each person in the, in the, uh, uh, the Lenten liturgies, each person, one hour a day, don't use any devices. Turn off devices and instead fill your time with a coffee with friends, um, with a meal. You know, Hope Brooklyn, we love eating together. Go eat together somewhere. Don't look at social media once. Don't check, turn it off entirely. Don't have it on the table. Just put it in your bag and be there. And it'll be awkward at first, just so you know. I'm giving you permission. Let it be awkward. But do it. Embrace the limits. Incarnate yourself once again. So I want to invite the, uh, the, the worship team back up. And we're going to take communion together. And the reason why we take communion every week is because at this table, we celebrate the incarnation. That God, who did not uh, stay in heaven, but actually came as one human, one person within one time period. And each week, we incarnate ourselves once again. We remind ourselves that through a particular piece of bread and a particular cup, we are saved. And so we're gonna pray and then I'm gonna give announcements about how we take communion as a church. Lord, we confess that we are addicted to our phones. 
we confess we are addicted to our phones. And we're addicted to our phones because they make us like you. We, we think they make us like you. They give us a lot of knowledge. They allow us to be anywhere in the world. They allow us to feel powerful. And that's really, really seductive. But it's also killing us. And we know that too. You've called us to be in the world, but not of the world. So we can't totally um, throw these away and live without them. But teach us, Lord, to derive our worth and our identity from you. Teach us to be incarnational humans. Teach us to be limited. Teach us to be one person with one set of friendships. Teach us to pursue one another face to face. As you've given uh, our, our three pillars, we eat together face to face. We don't eat together virtually. We eat together face to face. Allow us, push us into those awkward conversations, Lord. Retrain us to be a creature. Because when we are a creature, then we allow you to be the creator. Then we experience freedom for you and for one another. Lord, we thank you for your body and your blood, a particular body, particular blood. We say that it's a mystery that we don't fully understand, but we come to the table with open hands and we confess, Jesus, that you are Lord and we are not. You are Lord and we are not. You define life for us. You define existence. Our eyes are open, Lord. Our hands are open. We love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.